Good evening, everyone. We are now in class number 60-whatever. I'm actually doing this without my own copy of the book, which is really tough. But as it happens, I just, for the first time finally in 66 classes, I actually managed to leave it at home, which I thought was... Yeah, no, but fortunately, I just didn't have that much written in these, so we're just going to assume it's going to be okay. <laughs> That'll make me feel more familiar if I just have one that's scribbled in. I think to Murthy, it's more sentimental. That book and I have been together for a long time, so to be finishing it up without him, I just feel really badly, mostly for him. Okay, 424, right? Okay. Ready? Um, does any, nobody has any comments or questions, I presume, from last week? Nope, you would be raising your hands. 424. Desires and attachments exist for another, the ego, for they cannot act except in association. Is that where we are? Yeah. But they cannot act it except in association with it. And then the commentary is very simple. Who desires? Who feels attachment? The ego only. Without ego... Neither desire nor attachment could exist. And, you know, we're getting into the home stretch of the book. <clears throat> and he's making just, you know, really straight, simple statements of things we've been struggling with this whole time. And by this time, you know, when we're talking about ego, we should have a fairly clear idea in our mind um, uh, that what he's trying to emphasize is the complete independence between the outer and the inner world. You know, there's a very subtle meaning to the word ego here. People use it as if it means pride or um, self-aggrandizement or something like that, but he's not using it at all in that way. He's using it as a, a definition of alternative kinds of consciousness. And it's, it's very... Um, I, I hear a lot of people misuse, and I know I've talked about this sometimes, this concept of ego because they use it to try to dismiss aspects of their own nature that they they wish they didn't have and they imagine they can get rid of just by dismissing, oh, it's just my ego, people will say like that. But it's sort of like saying, oh, it's just my right foot, you know, it's it's just my left rib cage, it's just my liver. And if you said it like that, you would realize, well, it may just be your liver, but your liver is an integral defining part of, of how you move through the world. And you can't really just ignore it by declaring that, that it's the only problem that there is. So what, we're, what we have to work with instead in order to use this uh, extremely important just blanket statement without the ego, there are no attachments and desires, is that what he's, what he's saying to us is that the, the way to solve these problems is to shift our consciousness. And we've been talking in you know, many of these uh, verses before about being able to, about how this week, last week especially, we talked about how everything depends on the flow of energy in the spine and everything depends on where that vibration is, what you're perceiving. And it, it's helpful to have it really clear that I am not that ego and therefore that which is suffering, what's, what's suffering, what's feeling it, what thinks it has to have it, is just uh, a level of vibration that I have found myself stuck on. But what doesn't serve us is affirmation that's beyond what you're able to do 
or, or anything that causes you to be at war with yourself in such a way that the result of that um, is um, suppression, judgment, ultimately feeling discouraged rather than helping you to transcend. So sometimes the same words mean different things. We have to... Um, I was talking about this earlier this morning because the thought had just come to me. We have to... Um, we have to move forward in accessible steps and not just in theoretical steps. So even when you get something really theoretically true, you have to ask yourself, how accessible is that to me? That was just sort of a word that had, had just came to me thinking about things. And what may be accessible to someone else may not be accessible to you, even though it's true. I, it, and when I was in Los Angeles over the weekend, I was telling of that very long story, which some of you heard about Swami Kriyananda telling us about after he was thrown out of SRF when he was just beginning to teach again. And his father decided that he should give him the car, that Kriyananda should own the car that his father had been letting him drive. And Swami was telling a group of us, a group of sadhikas as it were, just he, 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 started, he started weeping when he was talking to us. Tears were running down his face. I cannot tell you how painful it was for me after having renounced everything for God, to have to own a car. And it was just, it was, and he was so, you know, he had to master himself. And in those days, Swami didn't cry often. It wasn't like at the end. But just the memory of when he'd been, you know, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier, having to take possession of that car. And he knew he had to. It wasn't right to just use his father's car. He had to take responsibility. But to find himself in the position where he had to own something like that again. It was just intensely painful for him. And he was talking to the sadhikas, and the sadhikas are the group among us who have uh, the, the, the dedicated devotees whose karmic situation involves them in more than just ashram life. That's the, just the way you can, trying to find the way to say it. Children to raise, careers to follow, uh, spouses or family that have to be honored, that, that don't permit a life that is just the ashram. And I had asked Swamiji to try to help that group understand that role in life. And this is the story he told. <laughs> it just was like... It. And so afterwards, just at the, after he'd finished, he'd finished the satsang, he turned to me again and said, you know, is there anything else? And when he had asked me at the beginning, what should he talk about? I said, why don't you talk to them about what it means to be a sadhaka, having talked about what it was. He then tells this whole story, among other things, and other stories of extreme renunciation, capped with that. And then he asked what I think he should talk about and said, why don't you talk to them about what it means to be sadhika? <laughs> Swami looked, you know, just a little surprised. And he said, that's all I have been talking about. But then he turned back to the group and he said very seriously, don't even, thinking, don't even think about trying to live the way I live. He said, you could never do it, and it isn't even appropriate for you to try. And I think what he was doing is he was trying to say, look, this is what, you know, full not being involved in this world really looks like, so be realistic. You know, we cry because we can't own a car. You know, we're not able to afford it, rather than because we have to. And he's, so he's just saying, do that which is actually 
natural to your reality because you can't, you can't build on empty air. You have to build step by step on what you can actually do. And that was where the, this morning the word accessible was in my mind. You know, look, look toward the mountaintop, but see what, you know, what step is accessible to you. What's your next step? You see these rock climbers who go up these things. I mean, that's not accessible. If I'm going to get to the top, I'm going to have to go around to the side and get a stepladder or you know, whatever it might be because somebody else might just be able to scurry up that hill. So this is a simple word. Yes, of course, it is only your ego. But that is the problem, you see. That's, not, um, that, that's, a, that's a signpost on a very solid, steady journey. And because we talked about it so much last week, I don't have to do it again, but just realize, oh yeah, I desires and attachments, I have them, but they're not really me. It's only because I'm, I'm trapped on this level of consciousness, so let me work on my level of consciousness. And sometimes it's not even appropriate to work on becoming more detached. I was, I was uh, talking to someone not too long ago, and it was the same sort of thing. They kept talking to me about <clears throat> learning to love without attachment, their goal was to learn to love without attachment. They were going to learn unconditional love. <coughs> and I suggested, you know, basically, why don't they just be nicer to their plants? <laughs> Perhaps that's a slight exaggeration of the advice I gave, but sometimes instead of actually working realistically on something we can accomplish, we prefer, to, um, we prefer a grandiose dream. To, a, to an actual forward motion. And on the spiritual path, it's easy to fall into that, so you have to be very conscious of it. Without ever lowering the mountaintop, you have to just realize, yeah, that's right, it is only my ego, so I meditate every day, and I, I concentrate on the spiritual eye, and I try to solve my problems by lifting the energy, all the things we talked about last week. Okay, any questions or thoughts on that? Okay, number 425. For those who can distinguish between the mind and the self, thoughts in the mind cease completely. Isn't that just a lovely promise? For those who can distinguish between the mind and the self, thoughts in the mind cease completely. The mind is only a reflection of the more distant-seeming indwelling self or soul, which never acts directly in the body. That's just an interesting thing, and I'm not sure I can make that really clear, but it's an interesting statement. Thus, when one sees beyond the thinking process to the silent observer within the self, the mind's fluctuations cease completely to exist. Well, I mean, when you can see through it all to the indwelling spirit, then the vibration of your consciousness matches that spirit and the, the vibration on which thoughts are constantly arising, it, it, it's happening without you. you know, it, it, the vibration is still there, but if you're not on that vibration, it's just like in the room now, we could hear lots of radio programs, but we're choosing not to listen to any of them because we don't have a receiver tuned in to receive them. And so within ourselves, we re- receive those thoughts all the time because we believe we believe. We believe that we are that. You know, we're thinking about that, that all the time. And so we're vibrating all the time in the level of interest in what's going on around us and wondering what's going to happen to me and remembering the book that I, I read and wondering what we'll have for dinner tomorrow and thinking about what somebody said and having all these feelings. We're just always 
going like that. And, and when we're in that, you know, we rarely are, are simultaneously conscious of transcending that. And of course, so the more you can think about that transcendent level, your, your energy just simply isn't drawn to those things. They're not magnetized to you and you're not magnetized to them. Of course, again, we're talking about a very refined level of consciousness. But this is all um, directional. And, and the whole effect of this entire book, which you know, we're now uh, strolling toward the home, the home, the final end of this, has just been this, really, it's just been, it's one note, Patanjali, which is inner reality is true reality. Everything else just appears to be there, but isn't really there. And, and the more we can just capture that, so that even if only dimly, you can just sort of just sort of see that just a little bit. I've been talking about certain realizations that I, I don't actually have, but they, they glimmer now on the horizon. Whereas before, they didn't even glimmer on the horizon. They were just words in a book that I could repeat. But if you just see them glimmering out there, just, oh, just for a second, then there's a certain uh, uh, st- strength that builds in you with that. And so that's what he's telling us here. The more we can just understand the difference. These are just my thoughts. This is not me. I mean, I, that, it's just such a powerful, it's just such a powerful idea. Yes, Tricia. What is going on um, if, say, your hands are not gripped? What is going on if, say, you're thinking in a direction which is not productive? Uh-huh. And then part of you, some part of you recognizes that uh-huh. it is not productive and is trying to counteract that. Is that partly the silent self within or is it another part of your mind um, coming to the fore? I think if you're struggling to contradict it, it's just the two parts of your mind, but it's essentially sattvic versus rajasic or rajasic versus tamasic and therefore is directionally appropriate. I think when you're when you when you're actually have shifted to another level, you're not struggling one against the other anymore. The vibration has ceased. I mean, that would just be how I would think about it. But it would be obvious that everything is directional. I'm having counterproductive negative thoughts. I think I'll try to have positive thoughts. But from positive thoughts, it's more easy to go um, into a, a state where the whole thing becomes calmer. Because by its very definition, a positive thought is going to be closer to the vibration of stillness than a negative thought, which is really binding you, you know. So, so we have to work. That's what. That's in fact a very good uh, way. Specific in terms of what I was saying, it's not enough just to declare that this is just my ego, and then just sort of bad ego, and then just go on. You sometimes you have to engage with the process a lot more, and it's and it's a lot more. Um, I, I was remembering uh, in some questions. That, let me let me think for a second. It's like. In the book, Ask Asha, it might even be the first question in the book, I'm not sure, but, but this man who I knew, and I, I knew him fairly well, sent me a long question, and he asked me all different theoretical questions. And my answer to him, just in the letter that I mailed to him, said there's no shortcut. So then I'm, I'm, I'm working on this book, and I'm editing the letters I sent for longer, and there was no logical connection between his question and my answer. There's no shortcut. Um, I answered him because I knew him, 
And I knew what he was really asking me, which was, I'm tired. I don't want to have to work this hard. Can you, get, can you find a way for me to get this result without having to do all that work? And the questions were all about, you know, free will and this and this. But the actual question was, isn't there an easier way to get there? And so I had to rewrite the answer in such a way that there was much more of a logical bridge between the points. I didn't just say there is no shortcut, but there wasn't the logic, the initial logic wasn't there. But I I knew that still was the right answer. And so um, a lot of times going back to, oh, it's just my ego. It's it's that if we can just say, oh, it's just my ego, then we don't really have to, to struggle, mano a mano, so to speak, with all of the inclinations we have. We imagine we can just get, get rid of it with one fell swoop. Now, in a, later, um, in a later one of these sutras, and I don't know if we'll get to it tonight or not, um, Swami talks about the importance of devotion. And, and let, me just, let me just see if I can pull those thoughts together. It's a little confused in my head. Give me a second. Um, Well, um, it it is, I think it is, he talks about the importance of devotion, which is that when you're really hungry, you'll do anything. And when you're just sort of, I mean, you'll eat anything if you're really hungry. If you're not sure you're hungry, you say, you know, nothing really looks good. I don't really want the peaches. I don't like the strawberries either. Either the tofu doesn't look good. But if you're really hungry, you'll eat the peaches, the strawberries, the tofu, everything, because you need to be nourished. And on the spiritual path, there is this reality where, you know, I just want to be free. And it's, it's much more painful for me to sit as I am than it is to make whatever effort I can move forward. And there's just a stage where you, you cross over that. And then you're just not as inclined to be satisfied with things that just sound good but actually don't produce any results. But if you're not really that hungry, which is to say you're not really ready to work that hard, but you're just kind of hoping you'll get the result anyway, it's a very serious um, stage in the spiritual path that you have to get through, which is, this is very, very, very hard work. Just as simple as that. And you, you get, it's the pearl of great price. You just don't get it for just sort of hanging around and asking for it. You have to really earn it step by step. It's very confusing. Because the intellect can spin so many stories on the on it, but if you can distinguish between the mind and the self, <laughs> thoughts will simply cease to exist. But that that's the effort of self discipline, not just the words. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes. Uh, give uh, take the microphone, please. So aspiring to experience 4-25, would that be really um, focusing in on the techniques of meditation and really, I mean, very seriously and intently uh, with the idea that um, concentration and focus is really what you need in order to notice if what space you're in, number um, one. No. I, I think one should use every available tool. And 
definitely meditation being the most direct way to shift your level of consciousness is definitely one of the ways to go. And, and then, you know, the, somewhere in the, not, not necessarily in the front of your mind when you're meditating, but somewhere in your awareness is, is to uh, uh, affirm, consciously affirm and consciously cognize, you know, that I'm, this is another dimension. This just isn't me just having more of me. This is really me just leaving me behind. And there's visualizations and affirmations that you can do like that. Where, where you just uh, enjoy the fact that Atma Jyoti is just a little bit of a veneer over this whole, uh, the truth of who I am. This is a coat that I wear. This isn't really myself. And so, and then you, if you, when you're deeper in meditation and you're really feeling that, um, bring that, that thought, affirm that thought deep within you. Just let go of the body, let go of the mind, let go of the personality. It's, those are fun meditations when you're deep enough to really have them. Just think of yourself over many incarnations and just imagine all those little lifetimes just kind of burbling along out there and how you're just the overarching spirit that's seen them all. And when you're falling asleep at night, just imagine that you're not merely going to sleep, but you're just letting go of the whole thing. You you could either imagine that you're dying or just, uh, you know, it's nighttime and I'm, I'm closing down and it's over and I never have to come back to it. You know, it's just done for me. Just as much as you can, just always be um, letting it go. Instead of, I, I was talking to a woman today, she called me from far away and a friend of hers is dying, uh, has just suddenly been, or had, it's just suddenly come to light that she has a terminal cancer. And this is, you know, way far removed from Ananda. Nobody knows her. And uh, the woman specifically wants to go into hospice and not die at home. And uh, she was explaining to me about her friend, that her friend is just one, is, is systematically already, she has weeks probably to live, just divesting herself of everything. And uh, uh, the woman said to me, she realized she doesn't want to die at home because she doesn't want to die with the thought that I'm in my home. Yeah? I mean, in America, it's considered just wonderful if you... I, I would go to these... Uh, where my, my parents lived in, these, in the care facility for elder people. And, you know, and they would make sure that the elder person had hundreds of pictures of all of their families and children and all the mementos of all their life together and... It was considered just wonderful if everybody who was part of your life was crowding around holding on to you when you died, which is exactly the opposite of the Indian concept where the fourth ashram, the sannyas ashram, you just look at them all and say, your problem now, and you just walk off into the forest. And, and you say goodbye, but you don't die holding on to it. You, you let it go before. And so that's, I mean, meditation is a, the small death, or the daily death, if that's what you want to call it. And so when you're meditating, go there as much as you can. This is, you know, it's not I who am meditating. It's just the self who is experiencing itself. And just, just try to affirm it in every way you can, because those things will come back to you. They'll invade your dreams, and they'll um, come to you at, at the times that you need them. And, and, you know, the oddest moments, if you have been affirming this, you'll be in the midst of some otherwise difficult 
emotional or personality-based experience in which attachments and desires are acting through the ego. And all of a sudden you'll just, you know, a piece of you will just step back. And you'll just realize, oh, what, what is this all about? Who is, scrambling for, who is scrambling here? What difference does it make? I feel like that's what Swami All the time. He was so, um, uh, well, he was so centered because he just, he participated in it, he was attentive to it, but he just never, mis- he never mistook it for himself. Yes. Uh, this most recent Treasures uh-huh. talk is about that. It's 43 minutes from 1983. Uh-huh. And Swami just talks about just being the self and not being all the rest of the stuff that's going on. It's fabulous. And, yeah. And you can get it on Arananda. Yeah. Yeah. But we, you know, everyone who gets that from Ananda can also access it. And you can listen to it. Excellent. You can buy it, but also you can listen to it. Just listen to it. But that was two days ago. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And when Swami talks about it, he's, he's, he, can, he can see it. I'm, I'm, I'm glimpsing its, its flash out there in the distance, and Swami's just looking right at it and telling us about it. Yeah. But also when you first started Hong Sa, uh-huh. you hit within a several months a time where your mind shut off, and you were just sitting there. You can. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you? Well, we Most go, people do. You go into the breath and the mind gets, the breath gets quiet enough that the mind also quiets down with it. Depends on the nature of the heart. Yeah. Okay. So, nine to, uh, 426. Oh, this was this interesting point. The mind is only a reflection of the more distant seeming indwelling self or soul which never acts directly in the body. I was just going to sort of sit with that one for a minute. It's, it's, it's like the body itself has to be animated, has, there has to be intermediaries. I mean, I, I'm not really quite sure exactly how to say that. Tandava? <laughs> Does anyone have any way, to, way of explaining that more clearly than I'm able to? The mind is only a reflection of the more distant-seeming indwelling self or soul, which never acts directly in the body. Thus, when one sees beyond the thinking process to the silent observer within the self, the mind's fluctuations cease completely to exist. I, I can't really, I'm not capable somehow. To, oh, we have a couple of hands up. Okay, you have the microphone. Yeah, the only thought I had was uh-huh. um, God acts, you don't act. God acts, you don't act. Hmm. Okay, which never acts directly in the body. Okay. Well, not putting out any karma because you're not acting. The body, Yes. I think that's, that doesn't quite do it for me, but let's see what happens next. Okay. No, I, I have something very similar to say. It's sort of like uh, Sat, uh, the, um, the completely unmoved behind creation. Right. And that, that it kind of rings really true. Is it a, another way of saying that, perhaps? Okay. Yeah, Tandava? The mind is more subtle than the physical body. It seems like it's the connecting link. And just like you have to start with the causal world and then the astral world is energy and then you get down to the physical world. And just like in our bodies, you know, it's our willpower 
that generates energy. You know, it's something more subtle than the physical muscles, but that's how it gets to the physical muscles. It just uh, seems like yeah. a chain of more or less subtle things. I think that would be that would be a very good way to think about what's written there, because it starts with the mind as a reflection of the of the more distant self, but it's through the mind that the more distant self is able to act on the body. Because you're right, it needs that it needs a channel in order to reach reach it. Um, Yeah, we're, we're, we're bringing in different thoughts. So just sticking with that simple one sentence, which is really what I was trying to unravel, I think what you're saying is that th- that is how the soul acts upon us. And so that therefore, uh, therefore, thus, if we can escape from the mind, we escape completely. That's what's really, that's what it said. The mind is the link. And if you can get out of the mind and up into the spirit, you can escape. Yes. The idea-based body, right. which, you know, it's, if you're thinking ideas, energy, form, right. you know, it's just going back up that, that chain. And, you know, the mind, you know, that's where you have your ideas, as right. well as generating the willpower to send the energy out to the body. You know, what, what Patanjali is also saying here, or, or trying to instruct us is, um, he's, he's trying to, to tell us what the pathway is. That you can't, like, you're not going to get there by yoga postures alone. No, seriously. Or, or you know, it's somewhere or, somewhere or another, this, this is the link that has to be broken. And you can't get it just by uh, other things. I and mean, we don't have anything else in front of us. And our whole path is Patanjali's path. I mean, everything about Kriya Yoga and self-realization, as Master taught it, is completely consistent with Patanjali so it doesn't even occur to us that there would be another instruction that Patanjali would be clarifying or repudiating or, or somebody would be asserting a certain this, w- this is the way you do these exercises you fast you know you eat this certain diet which people will say and then, then you will just immediately go into this state and he's talking about well there's this just as you said there's this pathway since it comes through the mind, and the mind is the reflection, thus, when you get out of that, that and you see the self, the mind will just also shut off, because the mind has no job then. <laughs> because you, it's the intermediary, and if you skip right to the source, then the intermediary has no, nothing to do. So it just it stops functioning, because the only thing that energized it was the self moving through the mind to the body. So you go back to the beginning, then the mind just automatically quiets. Which is, again, it's telling us how and why to meditate. Because if you're meditating at the spiritual eye and you're tuning yourself there, then that's how you escape, uh, really escape, instead of fighting the mind on its own level. I think that's very scary to the ego. Well, yeah. No, but I think it's also, it is really saying... I mean, this is when this is when you, in which we are not doing, but when you are trying to understand whether a technique is valid or not, you ask whether it is consistent with the ancient sources. Whether somebody says, "Oh, you can do this in this way," you know, you can just think these thoughts or do these affirmations, and it's going to the mind will eventually quiet down just by doing things in the mind. No, he says, the mind quiets down when you identify with the self, and then the mind has no job anymore. Okay? Does that make sense? You sort of see what the purpose is behind it, and then it makes... 
Well, that's why this book has been so much fun, is because it's, uh, it's talking about a golden city that we're all um, knocking at the gates of, asking to be admitted, and it's telling us why we should keep knocking at those gates. It's worth, it's worth it, no matter how tightly shut they seem at times. Okay. Um, 426. When the chitta, primordial feeling, is drawn toward discrimination... It gravitates toward absoluteness. Upward feeling devotion is, in fact, the first essential on the spiritual path. Swami Sri Yukteswar, whom Yogananda called India's Jnana Avatar, the incarnation of wisdom, stated that until the heart's natural love has been developed, one cannot even set one foot before the other in one search for God. It's like living next door to the most famous restaurant, You may know the full menu, its excellence, its fame, but until you are hungry, you'll simply not go in and eat. Um, There are are too many hypothetical seekers, hypothetical seekers on the spiritual path who prefer to dabble in useless theories, who love complicated intellectual definitions, and whose greatest pleasure lies in abstract discussion. They will never find God. For all that interests them is mind games. So this is a, it's also, I mean, there's many levels on which this sutra is really relevant. It also helps tell you who you should try to help yourself, who you should try to share these teachings with, and, and how much arguing you should do and not do. You know, when you, when you begin to really realize, you'll think, oh, well, you know, this person has got all these theories and ideas, and if I can just show him that this actually means this and that this actually means that. Swami talked about being um, at some college. I can't remember now whether it was in America or in India. And having very, very intelligent people sort of debate with him about spiritual things. And it seemed very dynamic. But he realized that after it was over, they all went home, as he put it, and just licked their wounds and came up with better arguments that it wasn't for them a, a, you know, a recognition of some life-changing truth that they wanted to embrace. It was a mind game. And it's very important for us personally to be able to see when we're just doing that. Well, how does this relate to that? And what's this one? And if this one said that, then what does this one say? And are we really seeking God or are we just enjoying? And the subject matter might be um, divinity, but the actual... Um, experience is just one of shifting different parts around. And in ourselves also, we need to appreciate that even when we study, the study has to be feeding that essential desire for freedom. And, and uh, Sri Yukteswar and Master, they, they call it the natural love of the heart. But it's very interesting. It's a beautiful phrase, awakening the natural love of the heart. What does the heart naturally love? And, and, it's, and what is it that, what is the natural love of the heart? Because there's lots of things that the heart appears to love. It appears good, good food, praise from people, sloth. It loves lots of things. But what we have to awaken is its, its natural state. And of course, the natural state of the heart is to be not distracted and not drawn um, outside of itself, imagining that in all of these things will come what I want. To awaken the natural love is to realize that where the heart really wants to go is into attunement with God. 
And then even if, as often happens, we then express that, you know, in human love and in family and creativity and all of that, it's still a process of, of uh, it's, it's, a, it's an extension of our essential relationship with the divine. I mean, these are, this is the point that where the example is so important because the theory can be spun in lots of directions. So then you just look at those who manifest the consciousness that you want and you ask, how did they live? You know, you look at Lahiri taking care of his family and doing his government job and Sri Yukteswar managing his ashrams and filing lawsuits in order to defend his property. I mean, you you see them participating, uh, uh, training their disciples and making commentaries on the scriptures. I mean, but it's not like they have transferred their loyalty to any of those things. Their loyalty and their, their first intention. And you, know, we, we, you, you don't have to be, and what you also have to understand is, um, you don't have to love uh, uh, Krishna, you know, dancing with his flute. You can love truth. You can love the light. You can love the, the clarity of pure understanding. It's, love doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean sentiment. Um, or any particular picture, because love is, is what you're committed to, what it is that awakens your energy, that motivates you, you know, what, what, you're, what you're worshiping, what's on the center of the altar that is for you. And as long as we keep the divine there, that's, that's where our satisfaction will come. Um, yes? Sort of reminiscent of that story where it's told of a, a man filled with questions who is just burning to talk to Master and ask him these questions. And he makes several trips in there to talk to him. And Master just stops him right away. And he, has a, he says, first he says, love God. Okay, that's the end of that session. The guy comes back with more and more. And Master says the same thing, but in a much louder, more firm voice, love God. Mm-hmm. And the final answer to that whole sequence is, love God. Right. And all this other stuff just is, is knocked aside. And that, that, that man had the good karma to bring his intellectual questions to someone who would actually answer them. <laughs> if in the presence of a master, and you can, I think many could perhaps testify that it's true to some extent in, in the presence of a saint like Swami or something, uh, sometimes you can uh, go with uh, some issues. As you, as you get into his presence, you can walk away and say, I don't have any issues anymore. And they haven't been addressed directly at all. They've just disappeared. Well, that's because the vibration of your consciousness shifts. And on a different vibration, just as we've been talking about, the whole, you receive a wholly different message. And just depending on how um, capable we are of continuing that level, is whether or not they reassert themselves later. But every time you touch into that enough, because it's, it is the natural place for the heart, the, the rightness of it is so clear to you that even if you slip away from it, you always remember. Um, Edgar Casey, when he would do the life readings, different life readings for people, he often spoke of people, to people about that they had had an, an encounter with Jesus. I mean, it wasn't necessarily, you know, that you were an apostle or even an apostle or a student or even that, but you were on the street and he came by and he looked at you. 
And then what was so fascinating was that Edgar Cayce would often say to people that everything else that's happened since then has been guided and defined by that. You know, 2,000 years of different incarnations and all these different things, but for one moment you were actually, you actually touched reality and then that, that just held you. It was the natural love of the heart being awakened. And so whatever else you're doing, that's your point of comparison the whole time. Whether you're conscious, many things happen on other than conscious levels. What I, what I really um, uh, t- treasured so much after I got onto the spiritual path and the way I, I would think about it is I had a point of reference. Prior to that, it just, the point of, there was no point of reference. You ask this people and this is what's true. You ask this and this is what's true. You're with this group and that's what's true. But the idea, and this is the whole thing of Patanjali, that all of our consciousness is centered in the spine and the point of reference is where is the energy in the spine. And then everything can be measured suddenly. There's an objective measure for every, every input. I was in the car just coming down El Camino today with Helen and over next to us there was a, a man playing a fairly loud piece of music it wasn't as bad as it could be, but it was loud enough for us to know it wasn't our taste. And he was inside his car dancing to it, which, of course, made him look like he was having some kind of a seizure. <laughs> and I said to Helen, and this for him is a good moment, you know. <laughs> this, even, he looked very happy. And I, I just was thinking, like, you know, his, his awareness of the possible rises up to this dissonant music to which he can twitch in his car. And to him, that's like, you know, have, he was having a great time. It just, it's just, that's his vibratory level. But that's not the natural love of the heart, but that's directional, but compared to, I mean, he's, he's an, an infant. But it's in there for him. But just think, for example, that he'd had the good karma to stand on the sidewalk and Jesus went by and looked into his eyes. And then he went on with all these other things that the, um, the persistent dissatisfaction and that would be in there, that would be moving you. Because for that one split second, you actually touched into your own potential. And then even if you fell from it, everything is always going to have a little bit of ash mixed in with it. Because no matter how good it is, that you'll just have remembered, you know, this, this cheesecake is good, but you should have tasted one that, you know, that we had over in that other place. Well, it is, and that's why one moment in the company of a saint, even though it may take you a long time to finish that, and that's where every time you have a, any divine experience, you really need to just recognize it, respect it, hold it, so that, and, and let everything else revolve around it. You know, this culture is disintegrating so rapidly. It's really, um, really important to know where you stand in regard to things. Swami spoke of a time where, uh, when he was at Mount Washington, I think, where uh, he was blessed with a particularly deep experience. And uh, in his mind, he says, uh, he, he thought of the time he could summon it, summon it back any time he wanted to. So he moved on to more mundane things. And later he realized how much of a treasure it was and how difficult it was for him and what a blessing it was. And that from that point on, any touch, he just nurtured it 
as much as he possibly could. Yeah, exactly true. Yeah. All right. Any other comments? So, then, 427. As one is developing true perception, distracting thoughts may arise in the mind owing to past impressions. So, as we all know, <laughs> you're just sitting there and everything's going great until something bothers you. We should be careful to avoid the useless fillers with which the mind loves to fiddle. Television, radio, the temptation to phone everyone and his brother on a mobile phone, etc. I was in the barber shop in the city of Rome a few years ago and had no choice but to be at least aware of the television set blurring away, hardly a foot away from me. I myself never watched TV, which I consider a useless distraction. This one, however, commanded attention. What I noticed about it particularly was that the scene changed every two seconds. That's how long people's attention span was expected to last. Do try to overcome the noxious habit of polluting your mind with such garbage. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, this is the, this is the, uh, the justification for retreating to an ashram. But inasmuch as we are karmically involved, we are karmically involved in a world other than an isolated ashram life, uh, we have to be conscious of choosing our influences. And, and as, I see, you know, as I see the world becoming more and more what it's becoming, and more and more places that you go into, I mean, you just go shopping, just the most ordinary stores for groceries, and they're attacking you with these extremely dissonant sound waves just everywhere. I, I, I've even given up complaining. It's just pointless. But there's just you know, fewer and fewer places that you can actually spend any time in that aren't um, uh, a manifestation of a disintegrating culture, which is the one we happen to be living in. At the same time, of course, we're here to, we're here to do spiritual work to help ourselves and others, but we, we mustn't underestimate um, the deleterious effect of these influences. And with a little bit of effort on one's part, it's not that hard to vastly reduce um, our exposure. But we just have to recognize, you know, we'll, we'll get what we put into it, or what garbage in, garbage out. You know, it's just, it's really up to us. I, uh, I went... Uh, the other night they had a, a one-night show of Cirque du Soleil at the movie theater, and I had remembered seeing a Cirque du Soleil performance years ago that I thought was really fun. So I went into this movie theater, which now movie theaters, you have these lounge chairs. It, it's, you know, it's really quite comfy. And, but instead of doing what I had remembered they, they had done, which was all of the acrobatics and the circus-type stuff, there was a little of that. But there was also just a whole bunch of ugly noise. It's the only way I can think of it. Right in the middle, there was a whole bunch of people dressed in really modern, ugly-looking things doing an extremely ungraceful dance around piles of broken machinery. <laughs> and I, I said to myself, I can walk out. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, I don't have to stay here. I can just walk out. And so I just walked out. I felt so happy. You know, this was not what I had anticipated, and it was ugly and awful. But look at that. It's just like, what are they thinking? You really at Cirque du Soleil, that's what it's called. I just, we have to pay attention. 
we have to pay increasing attention and, and, and fill our minds with what we want to have. And it'll make a huge difference. I mean, it takes discipline because the rajasic and tamasic tendencies are strong in us. So we can't, we have to be realistic. But Swamiji used to watch movies, but he just watched the same dozen or so movies over and over again. Famously, Bambi was his favorite movie. It's just, it's just a beautiful film, beautiful music, beautiful colors and pictures. And it's hard when the mother gets killed, but still, it's just so sweet. But it's, so, it's beautiful. It's this astrally beautiful movie. And he would, well, most of the time, much of the time, at the end, that would just be the only movie he would watch. But he would relax and distract himself. But he just was something that had high vibrations. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, let's take a short break. 428. Distractions can be removed, as has been discussed before. See Book 2, 1, 2, 10, 11, and 26. Above all, by meditation and resolving the mind back to its source. (coughs) Distractions can be removed, and one can tread the spiritual path with greater resolution. Distractions can be removed, as has been discussed. I had it marked in my actual real book what page that was. Let me just go back there so we look at it. It's, it's Sadhanapada, and it's number one. Oh, accepting pain is purified. He's telling you, distractions can re- be removed by these methods. And number two, one, which he refers to as accepting pain is purification, study of the scriptures and introspection, openness to the divine will and guidance, and accepting of these constitute the practice of yoga. Those were great sutras. We had a really good time with those sutras. In these ways, our obstacles become minimized. And then he he says, I mean, this is just to remind ourselves of how far we've come. We're just celebrating this. All these obstacles, attractions, aversions, etc., can be removed by the perception of their first cause, which is the ego. So without having to read them all, but that's what he's saying. He's just reminding us that he has taught us because he says earlier, you know, as one is developing true perception, distracting thoughts may arise in the mind um, owing to past impressions. Then distractions can be removed. And this is how you can... I mean, Swami chooses, chooses to comment by telling us, by talking about our modern culture's tendency to just keep us absolutely distracted, just force us to be distracted. I, I know this is so cliché, to what I'm about to say, but I just came back on an airplane last night, or, or Sunday, Tuesday, on, on Sunday night from Los Angeles, and everybody was looking at their devices. <laughs> and it's just, I just don't, I don't pay attention all that much, and, and I just happened to just look around, you know, and especially on the airplane when we landed. It's just like everybody pulled out and and it was just that picture of you just looking, everybody is like this. What a strange society we have. I mean, I too, I was working on my computer. It wasn't like I was different. But we really have this. And it's very positive on a certain level. It's, I'm not going to say it's not. Because I was doing work that I really needed to do. And people are connecting and finding out things and talking. And we are just filling our minds with endless distractions. So we, we have to really... Uh, this is, a, this is a tricky time to be living. We're not just in some bucolic 
green thing where the only thing that distracts us is this beautiful leaf, you know, falling like this. We have to gird ourselves against this reality and, and project a great deal of our own magnetism so that we don't just get sucked down the tube of what's going on around us. So one wonders as the ages go forward and it's all mental, if it's not even worse, <laughs> or might be. Because you just have, you don't even need a device yes. at that point. Well, yeah, the, the fact that, and I don't remember where this is stated, but it's stated uh, unequivocally, that war continues into Treta Yuga. So if you start thinking about what kind of consciousness is required for, for people to go to war, you realize you're not, you're not dealing with that high a consciousness in the sense of true spiritual understanding. In fact, it just gets um, all of that advanced energy can then be directed in evil ways. As the ages get higher, war is more confined to soldiers, for example. I mean, the, the way we, we do war now where men, women, and innocent children are considered fair game is it even if you're fighting, it's a very low consciousness way to fight. And now we have these... But see, but as you get more advanced, now we can send these drones in where the drones just go somewhere and then eliminate whoever we want to eliminate. And it, you know, it's just... Uh, it's technologically advanced, but it's morally bankrupt. Uh, now, I'm not saying it's not justified because the other side is as morally bankrupt too. And so everybody is equally just hideously trying to do, do each other in. And it, so it's not wrong to use what's at your disposal to defend yourself or to advocate your cause. But what it's really saying is that all the way up through Treta Yuga, people are going to be attracted to this planet who have the consciousness that is self-centered enough to go to war. So it's a long time before it gets really pleasant here. And, I mean, Swamiji said, even, yes, he said, even Satya Yuga, it's still the material plane. And so the heart, you're never satisfied. It's just, you know, the music in the grocery store, if there are grocery stores, is harmonious. <laughs> and the, uh, Swami, well, Swami's comment about Satya Yuga was, it's still the material plane, but people like us are in charge. That was his words. I said, so the whole planet is run like Ananda? He said, yeah. But it's, it doesn't. It's not God realization. It's just a nicer place to hang out. Yes. Oh. There will still be ants in the picnic even then, yeah. <laughs> Although he, in, in the time tunnel, he, he, he describes that whole scene where there's so much harmony between man and all other sentient beings, that they don't even have to have screens on the windows because the insects stay in their part and the humans stay in the other and we don't have to create barriers between us because we all just work together at that time. So, But yes, there'll still be ants in the picnic, symbolically. Yes, did you want to say something? Okay, that was when Swami just said, you know, even Satya Yuga does not attract me. I'm not coming back. You know, this is a, this is a rescue mission we're on. <laughs> But we're also rescuing ourselves. I mean, even though we can complain and say all those things, if one feels one has a dharma to live in this atmosphere, one has to assume that it's going to strengthen my spine and make me strong. The, the obvious shortcoming of a protected environment is unless 
it is really karmically appropriate for you, you will gradually lose energy in it because of it's easy. I mean, that's what happens too often in, in uh, comfortable monastic settings is that you don't have to deal with all of the distractions, but you don't necessarily deal with yourself and your own ego either. You just kind of follow the routine and you fall into a comfortable rut. And it doesn't necessarily bring you closer to God merely because you're in an atmosphere in which you're not distracted by worldliness. So each person just has to stand in their own reality and forget what they're supposed to do. And then, then accept with gratitude whatever it is that you find yourself in. And be very careful about how and why you make changes. Both, both points of view are valid. See, we're, we're, we're a missionary station, so we're doing very good work for... We're introducing many people to the path. You know, just the existence of this temple. Even if you're not directly involved in that work, all of you and so many people make this possible by your financial contributions and your service to make it possible. And you make it magnetic by your presence and your devotion. Because if, some, if there's a lot of serious meditators in here and people come in, then they feel the atmosphere. And even when the building is empty, they feel the atmosphere. I remember, this is apropos of not much, but I was just, this was just what a memory. Um, the, eventually, Ananda's public activities, or even community activities, moved down to what is now the expanding light. But for many years, the only facilities we had were at the seclusion retreat. And the community got too big for the temple there. There was a, a year or two of transition when, especially at Christmas, when everybody was present, it was, you know, just, it was very difficult to find enough space. And we had at that time uh, one geodesic gnome, which, is the, which was the dining room. We called it the common dome. And then one dome that was the temple. And there was a relatively short distance between them. And one year the Christmas meditation was so full, there were so many people that that we divided up and we, were, we had the meditation in both rooms. And Swamiji spent, he was leading it, he spent the morning in the temple and the afternoon in the common dome. And somebody, because Swami was in the temple in the morning, had the idea that everybody who had been in the community three years or less or five years or less would be in one group and everybody who had been there more, whatever the cutoff was, would be in the other room. So... Um, I was in the, we were in the dining room. The older members were in the dining room. And the first round, the newer members were with Swami in the, in the common dome. It was a terrible idea from one point of view because all the deep meditators were together in one room. None of them were in the other room, with few exceptions. So we had, you know, just like way over the top, great meditation. And afterwards, Swami remarked about the other room. He said, it was like a migration in there, he said. <laughs> and he meant literally they were just sort of wandering around a lot. He said, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out where they were going, he said. <laughs> but it was, it was mental and physical. They just, because there was nothing to anchor it. And then, he, and then in the afternoon, he came to our side and we had, you know, we had a great time. We never did that again. That was just a bad idea because there was not, no power there. So understand the point of that being that if you, if, karmically, which all of us do, find ourselves here, realize how many ways there are to serve. And just think, I mean, none of us are at the level of rajasi. But Master made it clear, you know, just meditate because the power of his meditation was doing more than anything else could do. Not quite the power of our meditation, but it's directional. In this context, to be 
pulling that energy in that direction and creating a vortex of that has much greater effect than we know. Why is it that somebody will drive back and forth in front of this church? They'll come in and they'll say, I've been driving past this church for years. And all of a sudden they come in. Of course, their own karma has tipped in one way or another, but what helped tip it? It was just that force. I, I remember when we bought this and, and the, we first were... We, we didn't have the uh, everything beautifully done like this, but we needed to put up an altar, the first altar. And we decided we, we hung a big uh, curtain rod and we made this huge velvet curtain. And then we just put the masters on, in the, hung the masters in front of that blue velvet curtain. It, it was up there for quite a few years before we got it changed. It was, it was quite attractive. But uh, a few of us were here late into the night, hanging the curtain, getting the masters on the altar, just getting it ready for the, whatever the next Sunday service. And I, I vividly remember when we finally had it all done. I mean, we were really close to it. And we were even up on this, one of those lift things. We had a lift thing. And so you were, you were looking at it all like this. And we finally got it all set. And then you were looking at it from here. And I remember I walked to the back of the church to just see what it would look like. And I turned around. And for the first time, I saw this building with the masters hanging there. And I had an experience which I, I believe was real. I, I think it was the concept called an astral wind where you feel a wind, but there's nothing physical. I felt this enormous wind just just race down this aisle and just go right over my head and out the door. And I, I felt the master say, now we can get to work. <laughs> and really, it was. It was like, okay, we're here. You know, in India, they have big ceremonies when they install images and you know, in the Catholics, you consecrate the church. We didn't have any rituals at all. I mean, the lack of a ritual did not mean that we were not doing it. We just had no ritual. But it, it, it was in that moment, I felt powerfully, that they said, okay, now we're going to do this. And, and they did. They just shot out the door like that. And I've always, I've always held that from this spot, feeling that, that that is what's happening here, that masters are just vibrating. They're sending out a radio signal and people are, without knowing it, just picking it up. And think about, think about that in terms of lasting value. And also, just, here's a, I mean, just the point, the good karma that we get, I mean, we, we don't do it you know, just because it's good karma, but it, it, it is an incentive and it's worth thinking about. You, know, you, you, you pledge whatever you pledge so this place exists. And then somebody comes and they have this experience and they, they start this whole, you know, journey toward the divine. And you have caused that. I mean, the, the, um, how, what I'm really trying to say is when you, when you dedicate your time, energy, or your money to a spiritual work, you know, it's just, it's just geometric, the effect of that. As, as opposed to if you just do some little thing over here, because the effect is so long-lasting, the effect is so profound. And it's, it's a... The, the reason to think about it is to ask ourselves, what is my highest priority? You know, what to do with my resources, all the resources that are given to me. What is my priority? And if one has a desire to help, how can I best help? Which is one of the reasons that, you know, Ananda doesn't spend a lot of its energy 
doing things other than it specifically building the power of the capacity to spread the message of self-realization. Because we could feed people and help people, and it's not that it's not a good thing to do. And in India, they've, they do it more because, Ananda does more because as people say, in India, you simply must. Um, but really, when you help them uh, come to God, you've really given somebody that's worth something that will never leave them. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Okay, any comments? Then, now we are at 429. The yogi who has no self-interest in personal attainment, who seeks God for no other reward than the simple gift of loving him, achieves perfect virtue. This is the discussion we've had about whether you should try to realize God or not. In this state, and how you should relate to that concept in yourself, not that whether you should try, but how you should, how you should hold that thought. In this state, there is no ego motivation of any kind. Okay, you just love God for the simple gift of loving him. You don't have anything in your mind about, because I'm doing this, this is going to come to me. It's a really a very um, important state. And then you have this story, which many of you have heard, about Sri Chaitanya his disciples each asking, when will I find God? And he answers them three lifetimes, five lifetimes, six lifetimes. And to one disciple, he says, it'll be a million lifetimes. You will find God after a million lifetimes. And all the other disciples are just horrified by this answer. And when that disciple slinks out of the room, they all just think, well, he's just gone you know, to just weep in the garden and we should give him a little solitude. And then they realize that he's dancing in ecstasy on the porch and so the disciples go out, assuming that he's hard of hearing. Didn't you hear what the master said? And he said, yes, yes, celebrate with me. He said, I would realize God in a million lifetimes. And he said, what's a million lifetimes? He's, he, my guru has promised me I will realize God. And then the master, Chaitanya, brought the disciple back in and touched him. And he went into complete moksha at that point. And then Chaitanya said, I wanted to show you of what stuff a real devotee is made. And, and it's, it's, what we're working with is, it's self-forgetfulness. That, I mean, self-realization is self-forgetfulness. The self, you forget the small self in the contemplation of the great self. And it's not that the small self becomes really more and more important. And that's, that's where there's that fine line between both this faith and this powerful incentive to make the greatest possible effort because what I can achieve and the fact that if we become too oriented toward that, we are simply working against our own interests because what takes us to self-realization is joyful self-forgetfulness and just the experience of what else would I be doing with my time and my life except singing and dancing and chanting and meditating and serving and giving and that we don't even think of what of ourselves doing it and that's the part of it you just it's just the flow that's coming through you your own that's why seva is so liberating especially selfless service for a divine cause because in doing that you're 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 attuning yourself to a high vibration even if you're just doing some simple task because of the flow of energy that i was talking about you're aligning yourself with a very powerful flow of energy, and, and our point is to concentrate on that energy. Um, 
Ramakrishna was visited by a group of, Sri Ramakrishna was visited by a group of actors and dancers who were low caste at that time. One of his disciples, Girish Ghosh, was a Bengali playwright, and he created these theater companies, but uh, uh, well-bred women, women of high class, would not go on the stage. So he literally took his actresses from the brothels, <laughs> some of them, because they were the only women who would stand on the stage and dance at that time. Not entirely, but they were quite of them were not of the highest order. But Ramakrishna just entertained them with great enthusiasm and uh, afterwards, when people criticized that, why is he a high caste Brahmin associating with these low caste people? His answer was just so beautiful. He said, right now, the God they worship is music and art. And then he said, ah, but they know how to worship. And so that's, and when, and when they, they understand the true object of veneration, that they have much more, uh, they're much more advanced than those of you who are just prim and proper but are not, have not really put that at the center. So even our own desire for liberation, you have to be careful that it not simply become self-concern. What we really want is just to love God and, and to do what we do because why would we not? Because it's the most attractive thing there is. It's not enough, as Master said, to be good merely because it's your habit to be good. <laughs> you have to be good good meaning attuned, because it's the, it's, it's the way you're made. To be generous because it's the way you're made. To be kind because it's the way you're made. And then we just work with it. Just constantly work with it. And just think, well, the Guru promised I'll be free in a million lifetimes. What's a million lifetimes? When it comes, it's eternity. So it's such a beautiful story. All right. Okay. Number 430. In complete, ab- in complete absence of self-interest, all afflictions and past karma cease. So that's the same point, absence of self-interest. It's just there's no, when, there's, no, there's no self to be preoccupied with. There's only the flow of energy contemplating the beloved because all attachments, all desires, and therefore are all pain stem from self-identification with limitation. But when all that self-interest is gone and we're just an open window, um, when the ego has been destroyed in Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, one becomes a Jivan Mukta, or freed while living. This is not the state of final freedom, but in this state, in the total and permanent absence of ego consciousness, one is removed from all further suffering. So things still happen, um, but they don't affect you. Um, there was a, uh, a friend r- wrote me a, a little story about a little experience he had with Swami. This was, it's very interesting. He said in the middle, uh, right after the, the worst part of the Bertolucci lawsuit, when, we were, when it, was the, it was the reputation-destroying lawsuit that we had to go through, and Swami Kriyananda was just vilified in the courtroom by these, these sadistic lawyers. It was quite something... Swami was, at one point, he had been on the witness stand and he'd been asked questions. And, and he, you know, he'd answered adequately, but not, there was a certain kind of distractedness about his answers. The, his hearing aid battery died in the middle of the, in the middle of the cross-examination. He just really didn't think it worthwhile to, to replace it. <laughs> you know, it was just like, but, uh, uh, 
he went to, he went, this man was writing me from Italy, and he said, Swami went to Italy after that part of it, and they were having a little satsang, and um, my friend Darshan it, it was, was just friendly. He looked at Swami, and he said, Swami, how was, how was the trial, sympathetically? And he said, Swami looked at him with real pain in his eyes and said, it was horrible, just like that. And then they talked about a few other things and you know, had a little bit of a satsang. And then after half an hour or so, he, the Swami turned again to Darshan and said, it was horrible, just like that. And Darshan's comment, though, was extremely insightful and very interesting. He said Swami was just modeling for him the fact that it was horrible. And, you know, being exposed to a horrible situation, it was not pleasant. It was painful to have to be in that vibration. It wasn't that he was worried about himself, but it was a painful experience because it was so ugly. But, he, but what, what Darshan said is, Swami had no complex about having suffered. And I was thinking about what that, what that means, because I've had an insight into that. When you're really suffering, it's so intensely real. But after it's over, it's, you're, you're just not suffering anymore. Now, I, I've experienced that, and I've said it, but I realized as I was saying it, there was something wrong with that. Because I, I could tell the people I was talking to, they remember their suffering. Well, they want to. They've built a complex around it. And the complex is, why did this happen to me? Oh, I hope this doesn't happen to me again. Oh, it was so terrible. You have no idea how terrible it was. You don't understand how terrible it was. And I'm not trying to mock that. Because that is what you do. And, you know, they were so unfair to me. Why, why did it happen to me? Why did they make me do it? And so now you have not only suffered, but you have built a complex around your suffering. You see? So even though it's not happening, you can't put it down. But if you suffer intensely, as all of us do, as all humanity does, but just accept it as the will of God and don't blame anyone, then when it's over, it's over. And so that's what Swamiji was showing him. I thought it was so interesting because it leads into this fact that the saints are always telling us it doesn't matter whether you're suffering or not. And I've never actually been able to understand that. I really haven't, and I have learned that recently, that... Uh, let's see I've, I've begun to get a glimpse of what that means it's just something that happens but if you it, it, it always had concerned me more because I had more of a complex around it I was afraid of suffering afraid how bad it would get afraid of what I might do and held on to why do people treat me like this karmically you know I, I've, I've been conscious of holding in my heart um, resentments against situations that are incarnations old, you know, that cause you to distort your present relationships. I've I've had to fight my way through. You know, at Ananda, we've been, as Swami said, all things to each other. And not all of those things have been positive. And and one has relationships, even with one's guru bhais, in which there's just a tendency to not like it. You know, and I, I have people, because I'm such a strong personality, I have a lot of people who are still mad at me, and I'm not really quite sure why. I mean, mad at me not for anything I've done as Asha, 
but for wherever we were and whatever I did to them. And I have people that I'm still mad at for whatever they were and whatever they did for me. So that it's just, there's a complex around it. It's just not like it happened and it was really just a delusion because the only thing that's actually true is, is God. But recently, I, because of God knows why, I've been more miserable than, I've had more intense bad times than I've ever had in my life. But part of, I think, what has been burned out of me is a complex about it. Because I think a lot of past karma has just been incinerated. This is just me like, huh, just trying to make sense out of something. But that realization of how, how non-existent it is when it isn't. But it, it's still, if, if you, unless... And these are Darshan's words. It wasn't Swami who spoke of the complex. It was Darshan's perception of what Swami was teaching him. He's a very insightful man. But it just, it rings true. So if you're not, if you have no complex about it, God sends you suffering, you suffer. And then when it's over, it's over. Because all that's happened is God sent you an experience. And well, there's no ego, there's no this, whatever. But so here he says, see that, and that also explains how Swamiji, who was a Jivan Mukta, I believe, I think he was born a Jivan Mukta, could experience everything. It wasn't that he didn't experience it, but he, was, he didn't suffer. It was just an experience. Because it was just simple. It was horrible. Yeah, it was horrible. Who would ever want to, you know, that's what it was. Does that make sense? I think it's a very important, because we're also afraid of pain and suffering. Yes. I was at one of the lawsuit trial dates, sitting there watching and at noontime, I was feeling depressed because it was a bad time. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Swami came up and said, Rick, good to see you. Shook my hand. I looked at his face and it was not touched. Yeah. He got up and walked out and I thought, oh. <laughs> it wasn't touched, he said. One of the worst days of the trial when we knew that you know, just, it was just going to be a, really, a real vicious attack on Swami. And most of us were not allowed into the courtroom because, uh, I mean, most of the the, not, I mean, a lot of uh, people, any, anybody could go in, but many of us who were really closely involved, our names were on various witness lists, lists and so that was a way of excluding us. It was deliberate. Um, and so we were so worried about Swami because it was just a horrible, it was really lamb to the slaughter sort of day. And when he, he came out of the courtroom that day, there was about 30 people in the hall. And we just rushed around him and uh, we're just you know, how are you, Swamiji? And he just stood there like that. And then he quoted James Bond, description of the kind of martini he likes. I mean, he, he didn't introduce it, but that's what he did. And Swami said, stirred, but not shaken. <laughs> and that was, it was a direct quote, you know, from whatever that was. And we all recognized it. And I mean, it was, it was a terrific moment because all the opposition and horrible lawyers were there. Swami, they just did their best to destroy him. He comes out. All his people rush around him. There's a little bit of exchange. Then this roar of laughter. You know, just everyone just laughed. You know, just the rafters were ringing. And it just like, just broke it, just like that. You know? It was awful. It was horrible. But it's not, it's over, so let's go on. And that way then, it doesn't matter. You know, who cares? We do care, but you don't have to care that much. Certainly it's the beginning. In complete absence of self-interest, all afflictions and past karma cease. Absence of self-interest. 
I just love God. 431. Then all the coverings of ignorance and impurities are removed entirely. In this state of omniscience, what remains unknown through the senses becomes insignificant and negligible. Okay, I think what he's saying here is that when we're in that high state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, it's just we know everything that we need to know. And even if we're not so living through and paying attention to all of this, anything that you need to know, you will know. And that's how the saints can move through the world without behaving as we behave, without this constant observation and necessity of everything that's happening. And we can also emulate that a little bit by realizing, just live in that flow of energy. It's just, it's just not necessary to be so uh, engaged with every little detail. We, we, we tend to think of that as a value, but really the greater value is to, directionally, to just be centered in God and realize it's going to take care of itself. I mean, many of us have had so many experiences of that. It just, you really don't quite have it together, but somehow it's going to be okay. It just works out. I mean, what they're saying here is that they can be completely uh, outside of this realm altogether, but anything they need to know, they'll just know. It's just as simple as that. And and Swamiji was both very practical and very tuned in and very indifferent. And just whenever he needed to know anything, it, it would come to him. You know, you don't have to... I mean, this is a small thing, but you know, I realized a long time ago, I, never, I don't have to read the news, I don't have to watch the newspaper. Everything that I need to know always comes to me. I mean, really. I, I mean, even about current events, it just comes to you. You don't have to always be engaged on that level. Whatever you need will come to you. If you're, if you're actually using your energy in another way, if you're just tamasic and shut down and not willing to think. That's one thing. But otherwise, just keep your energy where it needs to go and everything else that you have to know will come. And, and he's saying here, even if you seem to be completely outside of this world and not even in your senses still, if you need to know anything, you'll be able to find out. It's really very sweet. <sighs> Seek God. Think of God. 432. We're all going there. We're all going to get there. 432. At this, pardon me? No. <laughs> well, I'll go together. Durga had a beautiful dream once. Um, it was a super conscious dream, and she dreamt that we were all at the, on the lawn of what the market at Ananda Village. And she said there was this huge circle, and she recognized, you know, that this was all of the Ananda spiritual family. And she said, and we were all, I don't know if we were holding hands, but we were all standing together and just kind of being together. And every so often, someone would just sort of turn into light and kind of rise up and leave the circle. And she said what was so moving about the dream was you didn't feel any sense of, of envy or longing, oh, I wish that was me. She said you were very conscious of the fact that if any one of the spiritual family went into the light, then it was happening also to you. And that, that was the sweet part of it. And it, we're, just, it, we're all just taking turns. And, it, and if it happens to one, it happens to all of us. It's just such a sweet picture, isn't it? Everybody is, we're here, we're going to make it together. And we came, we, you know, we came down from the astral world together and we'll return. Uh, number 432. At this point... The gunas cease to serve their purpose and they have been transcended. 
their, their purpose is um, you know, to keep creation moving, to give us, to, to measure, as he said, the three gunas are degrees of distance from God. When one's consciousness merges in God, he becomes triguna rahitam. He's, tra- he's, he's transcended beyond all the three gunas. In, in that poem about the guru that describes the guru's triguna rahitam, he's, he's transcended this level of creation. So they, they just, you know, they've served their purpose, which is they have, uh, they have taught us. We've, we've experienced everything we need to serve, we need to know, and now we can just put it all aside. We don't have to live with any of that anymore. It's, uh, I love that they've served their purpose. It's like everything in this creation has one purpose, which is individual soul liberation. People these days are very, uh, I've got to find my purpose. People are always saying, everybody has a purpose, and people spend years trying to figure out what their purpose is. Your purpose is to love God. It doesn't really matter how you do it. Just, I mean, seriously, start there. And if you just keep loving God, just as we're talking about, then everything else will come to you because you'll be operating in the natural flow. If you're self-preoccupied and always worried about your own position, then it's very difficult, even if it's well-intentioned, it's very difficult to get very refined intuition because the mind is always spinning around the egoic self-interest. If you forget the self in generous service to others, regardless of where you're standing and where you are, you know, all of us in our lives, because you, inter- you interact with um, just people working in stores and service people and the people in the library and here, every time you run into someone who actually has a loving and a generous heart, I mean, isn't it just a completely different experience? Yeah, just, it's a completely different experience. It, it just changes the whole reality. And we, I mean, that's a lesson to us. When we're so worried about the details of our lives we actually realize that the detail is not the issue, it's the vibration that you're putting out. And the purpose of this experience is to show us all the different, you know, how to be closer or farther away from God. And once you have learned that, then you just don't have to live on this plane anymore. It's gone. 4.33, the sequences of transformation end. And with that ending, time itself ceases to exist. Time is only a product of the consciousness of change. When change ends, time itself ceases to be. That is a fabulous thing to contemplate. Swamiji, at different times in his life, got so excited about how he would explain that to us. He, he told us, he gave us this lecture over and over again about the, the, the planet in which nothing moves and the moon. And it just was so clear in his mind how he was explaining the whole thing. I never understood it, never. I could never, I could just never see what he was talking about. But I was remembering um, Master saying, evolution continues until it achieves endlessness. You know, we just keep moving until we've transcended all possibility of change. Everything stops at that point. Without change, how do you measure time? You measure it by change. If nothing changes, how can you, how can you tell? And how and they say the way they put it is no time passes because there's no context for time to have passed. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Which tells us also the more you are centered in yourself, 
the more to that extent you also step outside of, of change and time and therefore you're less bound to the egoic definition of this particular life, all of it. I mean, that's, that's what Swami was like. He was so centered, you know, that whatever was going on around him was quite, it, always, it was always the same to him. Ananda Ma describing herself from childhood through girlhood through young womanhood, I was always the same. Because whatever was moving around her, she was not moving. So this, all of this was oscillating, but she was not oscillating. She was always exactly the same. Superconsciousness is nothing changes. It's just infinite. You're, you're there. And, but you see, we can use that instead of allowing ourselves to become so concerned at all times about every little thing. What difference does it make? We just, and that, that's why, you know, that's why Swami could be just so just sort of calm no matter what was happening. So unconcerned about, he was never rattled. That's the phrase I've used because it's the best one I can think of. Because in, inside of him, it was always the same. He was always just quietly in the presence of God and Guru. And then he would participate, but his, his point of reference was an unchanging point of reference. That wonderful story about the, the uh, devotee who goes to his Guru for initiation and the guru tells him to, you know, keep the firebox, the, the, the wood box filled and keep uh, the, the water jugs filled. And so he just chops wood and carries water. And disciples come and go and he just chops wood and carries water. And then they tell the story about how finally uh, one day he, uh, he, uh, he, between two pieces of wood, a little of his beard got caught. And he looked down and he realized that his beard was white. And he had come, it was was white and it, it came, uh, he realized that he had grown old and he went and looked at the water pond and saw his face and saw that he had become an old man and all he'd ever done was carry wood and chop water. I, I mean, chop wood and carry water. And he had a moment of despair. I came here for God realization and this is all I've done. And the story is told that he, he began to weep and as the tears were falling, his guru rushed outside and with both hands caught the tear like this. And he said, don't you know that if the tears of a great soul like you touch the earth here, there'll be famine in this land for seven years. That's how it's sold. So he, you know, he, he, he caught it because it would be, it would, it would be a curse for a, such a saint to be unhappy in this spot. And then he touched him and he went into, uh, he was freed in that moment. But it's because he never lifted his eyes from what he, his, this is what my guru told me to do. A man in our community, Prakash, has, that, has always had that kind of willpower. And where Swami's dome is now, you know, it's, you can drive down and all of that. But when he, that house was first put there, it was just the forest and then the dome, and that was that. And you just came down this, the hill on this path. And Swami was having trouble with his hips and um, Prakash decided that it would be better for him if he had something different. And Prakash started digging steps. And every day, Prakash dug one more step, no matter what it was. You know, he dug it like this, and then he would put a railroad tie. And every time we'd come up and down, you know, there'd be one more step. And, he, you know, he just did it because he knew it needed to be done. And he wasn't asking for anything. I just remember so vividly Swami 
looking at those steps and, and saying, you know, every day Prakash takes one more step. And Swami said, Master would have loved Prakash. You know? I mean, it's very high praise. But that's what we're, that's our purpose. Just, how can I serve? And then serve. And everything else will take care of itself. 434, last one in the book. Thus, after all of these all these sutras, have, after having done all of that, four books, thus, the four books of this book, thus, one attains the supreme state of freedom when the gunas reabsorb themselves into prakriti. Prakriti is the creation, nature having no more purpose for serving the Purusha. The Purusha is the inner soul. Or, to put it differently, the power of consciousness withdraws into its own nature. Thus. So, all we have to do... That's it. Well done, everyone. That was a great experience. Yeah. We are pleased. That was really a fabulous experience. Thank you all so much for sharing it. So we went from 424 to the end of the book, 434. So don't you think this is the best book ever? Except for for all the others that are the best book ever. Yeah, but this is really way up there with the best books ever. Yeah, it's right up there with the best books ever. course. It's practically the last book he wrote. And you know, every, every great spiritual teacher in India does a commentary on Patanjali. And, and Master's commentary on Patanjali, which is what this is, in the sense that this, this is Master's interpretation. It doesn't exist in published form. So this is the confluence. Is this what I say? I, I wrote something. Yes. Demystifying Patanjali rep, represents the confluence of three great yoga teachers, Patanjali, Yogananda, and Kriyananda, which is one of the reasons it's so powerful, because it really is. It's the confluence of all three of their consciousnesses brought together in this particular book. All right. That was fun. So we take the rest of June off. But it's only, you're only actually skipping one class because I'm going to be out of town for one of them anyway. And then in July... We start conversations with Yogananda. This will be the same thing. We'll just do it every Tuesday, except when we don't. <laughs> That's our schedule. Yeah, for as long as it takes. Yeah, and that book is uh, that that book is a potpourri. You know, it's a potpourri of just many different things. So it'll be quite interesting because the, the subjects will just vary wildly depending on which number we're on. There's no consistency. I mean, no, uh, no thread. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>